Before we start uh, looking at Daniel 9 together, I wanted to take just a moment and have an, another focus for our, our prayer time this morning. There are a number of servant leaders in our church that are really covert. They're kind of secret folk. They do really important work. They are deacons and deaconesses in our church is the office that they hold. And they truly do serve us all, especially they serve our elders as the work that they undertake protects us and allows us to stay on task with the teaching of the word and uh, the ministry of prayer in the church. So we are deeply thankful for these folk and I wanted to have a chance. We have some who are continuing in that ministry, some who are new in that particular ministry, though they've served the church beautifully for a long time. And I want you to meet them this morning and have a chance to join me in giving thanks and praying for them. So um, you see pictures, I'll give you names to go with some of those pictures. And if you're here this morning, you are one of these deacons or deaconesses. If you'd come down front, we'd like to pray for you uh, just for a moment. So when I call your name, if you were moseying on down here, that would be great. New, new deacons and deaconesses are Gene Woodall, Craig Morissette, Noah Joyner, Karen Grubb, Kelly Sissel, Melody Edwards, and A.D. Miles. And those are all long-term servants in this church who are in, just new in this, this role. Continuing deacons and deaconesses are Mike Durstein, Blake Grubbs, Brian Miller, and Lisa Pereira, and Mindy Williams. So if you all would, mosey on down here, those of you who are in this service. Folks, these are wonderful servants that uh, bless us all. We would take a moment and give thanks for them and pray for them. So let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for these uh, brothers and sisters of mine who serve so beautifully. And I, I probably benefit more than just about anyone. So thankful for them. Ask your richest blessing on them, Lord, and want to pray that blessing in keeping with what you said of these people in 1 Timothy 3 that they would be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted, not greedy. They would hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, that their families would be well, that they would be faithful to their spouses, managing their children and their households beautifully. And Lord, as they serve well, that they would gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Lord, together as your people, we give thanks for these people. We ask your protection and your blessing upon the important ministries that they do. In Jesus, we ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. As Daniel mentioned, we're in Daniel chapter 9 this morning, and I wanted to give you a chance to hear uh, that passage that we're going to look at together, so Rod is going to come and read it for us. The word of the Lord, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people 
are called by your name. So does anybody know where this little town is? I'll show you a picture of it. Anybody recognize that? It's a little town in Florida. It has probably less than 200 people in it. It's called Miracle Village. And it's it's founded by a pastor a decade or so ago. And it's a town where people who are on the sex offender registry are allowed to live. See, if you're on the registry in Florida, you're prohibited from living within a thousand feet of a school or a daycare center or a playground or a park or other place commonly frequented, any other place commonly frequented by children. In some counties, that's expanded to 3,000 feet. And so that makes it virtually impossible for someone on the registry to live in those communities. In many cases, you're on that registry for life, so it can make it a pretty tough deal to find a place where you can live. These are, after all, folks who've made terrible choices and now they're living with the consequences of those choices, right? But uh, how would you feel this morning if I told you that you should live in a place like that? That that's where you need to live and you might respond but I'm not on the registry and I would reply but maybe you should be maybe not that registry okay what if there was a registry for secret sins the ones you didn't get caught for Or what if there was a registry for anger, or for worry, or for greed, or for unbelief? And you might object, those aren't exactly the same, and I get it, there's some differences, for sure. But didn't Jesus have some pretty strong words for merely errant thoughts and hurtful speech? I mean, listen, he says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You can go to hell for your words, Jesus says. Now, Is that how you think about your sins? Is that how you should think about them? Are are your sins registry worthy? Even those little hidden unacted upon ones? See, what Daniel 9 does for us is it gives us language for our sins. Um, But more importantly... It gives us mercy greater than our sins. Look at how Daniel sets the scene for us for this important chapter uh, in verses 1 and 2. He says, In the first year of, of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, or somebody like that, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel says this is the first year of King Darius. That date, that year means that there's been regime change and Babylon has fallen. Persia, Medo-Persia now rules in Babylon's place. That's that year. And chapter 9 is taking place chronologically in the book of Daniel just before chapter 6 when Daniel got thrown into that lion's den for persisting in prayer. Um, You remember that story? And I wonder if the language of chapter 9 is what Daniel was praying three times a day that he couldn't let go of. Back in chapter 6. See, Daniel's reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah when he comes across a prophecy that predicts the end of Jerusalem's sufferings after 70 years. And we'll talk more about those 70 years next week a bit, but I wonder if he was reading from Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29. Listen to what these prophecies say. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. You drop down to chapter 29, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill, you to, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here's this famous verse we love. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So the destruction of Babylon, Jeremiah is prophesying, and the restoration of Israel are bound up together in this prophecy of the 70 years. So this gets Daniel doing the math. And it turns out it's not far off 70 years since he and the others were taken captive by Babylon. And now Babylon has fallen. The prophecy is being fulfilled. What could all this mean? For Daniel what it means is it's time to seriously and prayerfully deal with their sin. Uh, Professor Tremper Longman tells why that would have been Daniel's response because this whole prayer that he prays, you heard Rod read in chapter 9, is a response to this prophecy. Uh, Professor Longman says, A faithful Israelite like Daniel would know where the true blame of the exile of the captivity that Israel was in rested, not on Babylon, but on the rebellious people of God themselves. So the idea is that the the exile was a result of Israel's sin. And so Daniel prays a remarkable, beautiful, powerful prayer of confession, which is something, honestly, that we don't talk about much these days, right? Prayers of confession. I suppose if there's a Christian denomination that's associated with the practice of prayers of confession, it would likely be the Roman Catholic Church where... um, Members of the church are expected to go into a priest, sit 
historically in a confessional booth and confess their sins to their priest. But recent survey found that 42% of practicing Catholics, okay, only 42%, or actually all of 42% rather, never go to confession. Never go to confession. And only 2% of practicing Catholics go to confession regularly. So if, if they are any indicator for us, we need this powerful reminder from Daniel how important it is that we would confess and forsake our sins. Um, you heard the prayer read earlier, but I'd like to look at it again and just underscore for you on the screen the language that Daniel uses to describe his sin and his people's sin, and they are um, all entangled together as, as he sees it. So look, starting in verse three, <clears throat> he talks about the fact that he's seeking God by prayer, making pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. If you drop down to verse five, he says, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse six, he says, we haven't listened to your, your servants, the prophets. Verse seven, he says, to you, Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. And then at the end of that verse, he says, our sins are treachery that we've committed against you. Again, in verse eight, it brings open shame because we've sinned against you. In verse nine, we've rebelled against God. Verse 10, we haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 11, we've transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Again, we've sinned against our God. If you drop down to verse 13, it says, we haven't entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. And then he ends with this powerful little phrase, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So the language is strong concerning the people's sin, right? We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned aside from God's command, we haven't listened to the prophets, it's shameful, we've transgressed God's law, refused to obey his voice, we haven't sought his favor, we refuse to turn from iniquity, we refuse to gain insight from the truth, we have sinned, we have done wickedly, and all of this, he says, was done against their God. It's not just his words that convey the seriousness of their sin. Uh, Daniel's posture, his attire, even his diet testified to it. In verse three, he was seeking God by prayer with pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He couldn't bring himself to eat. He wore the garments of repentance and mourning, and he pled with God. Okay. His sin and the sin of his people tore Daniel up. He was devastated by it. So could you use this language to speak about your sin? Should you? Do you when you confess your sin? Does it sound like this? Do you say that I have done wickedly when was the last time you used that kind of language to confess your sin? We think about our sins in much more domestic, manageable 
terms. There's a lady um, in central Michigan. Uh, her name is Christine Bishop, and she called her house the Critter Cafe, the house that she rented. She, she intentionally took in stray cats, dogs, even ducks, and then somebody bought, brought by some pet rats. And um, neighbors soon started complaining about a stench, and they started seeing rats running around outside of the house. And so when officials entered the house, they found um, the rats had totally overrun the house. They initially removed 1,500 rats and estimated that at least 1,000 more remained in the house. The property owner that she was renting from said the rats had become feral, so they bite, they carry ticks and fleas, they're susceptible to rabies and disease. The town's supervisor in charge said that these rats can breed 1,500 rats every three weeks. So essentially, if they're not removing about 1,000 rats every, every week or two, they're not making any progress. The next plan, next step in the plan is to wrap the house and fumigate it, which could cost the owner nearly $30,000, not including cleanup and disposal cost. So all of a sudden, the rats aren't pet, pets anymore. They're feral. And I, I think that's a good picture of what happens to our sin, right? We should call our sin what it is, feral rats, right? Or better yet, use the language of Daniel. It's rebellion, it's disobedience, it's wickedness and such. And the severity of language that Daniel uses when he talks about sin isn't the only tip that our sin is terrible almost beyond words. The language of God's judgment on the sins of his people is equally severe. Uh, listen to some of the words that are used. If we walk back through the passage, you'd hear things like this. God's judgments are described as desolations, a curse, an oath, a great calamity. Three times that's used. It's a calamity. And it says it's unlike anything ever seen under heaven. So severe is God's judgment. And you can add to that this kind of severe language that Jesus himself used. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Daniel says it again and again in this, in this prayer. God, you are right and righteous to judge us this severely for our sins. So, in light of all of this, confessing and forsaking our sins would seem to be one of the most important things on our to-do list, right? And Daniel is giving us honest language to do it with. But he's also giving us something else that's even more important. He's giving us hope, hope of a mercy that comes from a God, a mercy that's greater even than our sins. And you, you hear the echoes of mercy all around this language of sin and judgment. Listen to verse 3 and 4. I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer with pleas for mercy. 
with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, another expression of mercy, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And these, this kind of language echoes all throughout the prayer, especially at the end when he's done confessing. He's praying in verses 16 to 19, especially for mercy. Listen to verse 17 and 18. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That's the best of news. We don't have to deserve mercy, but we have to come to a God who is at the core of his being merciful. Daniel's only hope is that God's mercy is greater than the sins of his people. That's the the basis for his whole confession. And scripture declares it on every page. Psalm 40, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. The New Testament simply says mercy triumphs over judgment. And whenever it describes God in the most elaborate descriptions in the Old Testament, mercy's right at the front. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And by this amazing mercy, the mercy at the core of who our God is, God is taking us off the registry of sin and emptying Miracle Village by the good work of Jesus who brings mercy greater than our sin. By his death on the cross, he wipes our sins away. So Daniel is modeling beautifully for us here this practice of confession of sin. But he's doing it in a setting that's a little different than what we will do it in typically. And I want to just talk about that briefly so that it's not too much of a, of a distraction for you. You notice he's doing it in a, together. He's confessing the sins of a people. right? Not just his personal sins, but the sins of his people. And... Um, We do this from time to time. You'll hear our elders up here in front praying. Uh, We'll pray prayers of confession for our church family, for sins that are plaguing us, after us, because of the world and the culture that we live in. Um, 25 years ago, in 1997, um, the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are a part, made a resolution confessing and forsaking the sins of the racism upon which this denomination was founded in part. Let me, let me read just a little bit of it. Again, this is in resolution language, so you got to bear with that. Be it further resolved that we lament and repudiate historic acts of evil such as slavery from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest And we recognize that the racism which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past. And be it further resolved that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime. 
and we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. And be it further resolved that we ask forgiveness from our African-American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake. And be it further resolved that we hereby commit ourselves to eradicate racism in all its forms from Southern Baptist life and ministry. And be it further resolved that we commit ourselves to be doers of the word by pursuing racial reconciliation in all our relationships, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the end that our light would so shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Again, that's 25 years ago. This is not some new controversial document. This is something we agreed to as Southern Baptists 25 years ago as we repented together for sins of our past that were following us into this day. And so that's an example of how we can repent together, uh, kind of like what Daniel did with, with his people. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor and author, and he writes and talks about different ways that you can enter into apology together as a people. And he points out some important and helpful things. He says, first, you can participate in recognition. He says, I acknowledge what happened, and I see the negative effects of those sins of omission or commission. You can express remorse. I feel terrible for what has happened. You can, you can practice renunciation. I reject what has taken place in the past and repudiate those beliefs, words, thoughts, or actions. And then lastly, repentance for your involve, personal involvement. I have sinned against God and will turn away from this evil and strive after greater obedience to God's law in my life. So as far as we can, we use this kind of language of confession and apology, even, even together as a people, to promote healing and bring forgiveness and mercy. Now, of course, there are limits concerning confession of sin that you personally did not commit, <clears throat> but that's a really delicate conversation, and I'll post uh, DeYoung's blog this week if you're interested in those matters, and then you may find them helpful, as I did. Because our main concern this morning is really focusing in on our personal practices of confession. I'm not going to talk about even about confessing our sins to one another. That's really important as well. But Carson preached on that in February, and I'll direct you there if you want to think more about that. This morning, we're going to think in two realms, language and calendar. And you've already heard Daniel's language. We need to let the language of the Bible shape the way we think about and confess our sins. Because our confessions can tend to sound very different than what the Bible says. Here's a kind of a satirical look at what our confessions might sound like. Benevolent and easygoing parent. We have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We are glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know that they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. Now, that's hyperbole, obviously. But our confession language can often sound much, much different than, than Scripture. Right now, Daniel is going wherever he is, right, as he hears that read. Right? 
Let the language of the great prayers of confession shape your language when you confess your sins to God. So that would be Daniel 9, Daniel's confession, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah's confession, um, David's confession in Psalm 51, those kinds of things. You can borrow their language. You should use their language in confessing your own sin. In addition to that, believers that have gone before us have written down prayers of confession um, that can be really, really helpful because their language often mimics the language of Scripture in ways that's helpful for us. So there's a helpful book called The Valley of Vision. It's a compilation of, corporate, or of Puritan prayers from long ago. And uh, these folk, they knew how to confess, okay? They were serious about it. Their language can really be helpful. And if you don't have it, I'd recommend a copy to you. You can pick it up on Amazon. Um, another resource is something called the Book of Common Prayer. And in it, you'll find prayers of confession that sound like this. Here's an example. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So you hear the, hear the echoes of scripture in these prayers. Um, so one of my odd hobbies is I collect prayers of confession because I need them. And I have a collection about 10 pages long that I'll post on our blog this week. Um, grab that and see if any of those prayers, um, that last one being among them, is helpful for you. Okay. So, language. Let scripture shape your language. Let's be honest about our sin. Okay. Secondly, this whole matter of calendar. Now, let our calendars shape our praying in the sense that you should confess your sin daily. Why do I say that? You sin daily, okay? So you should confess daily. Okay? It's a, a wonderful practice. And I, I personally benefit from ending my day with a practice that's sometimes called the examine. And it simply means you examine your day. And you look back and you give thanks for God's kindness and you confess any sin that comes to mind. It's a great way to end your day. Jake Mason has put together a helpful little bookmark that I'll also post this week um, that basically collects this practice into a really simple process for you to use. But basically you give thanks and confess your sin. What better way to end your day, right? Um, but having said that, you also want to confess your sin as you go through the day. If you are made aware by God's spirit um, or your spouse of your sin throughout the day, okay, um, you confess it on the spot. You don't have to wait and think, whoa, that was awful. I hope I remember that tonight when I, when I confess my sin. No, you confess it right then and there. And this is especially important in relational sin where you need to confess to the person you've wronged. This is doubly important if they live in the same house with you. Keep really short accounts. So Daniel helps us with um, language. I think it's also helpful to think about our calendar when we confess sin. But most, the other thing that Daniel does for us, it's the most important thing, 
is that we confess our sins so that we can get mercy. That's why we confess. The forgiveness of sin for us is rooted in the great cross work of Jesus where he bore our sins on the cross so we could be free from them all and never pay the penalty because he paid it in our place. Listen to this beautiful way of saying it from the book of Ephesians. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood shed on the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Jesus died so that our confession could be more than a descent into despair because we're so terrible. By his life's blood, he bought us a mercy and forgiveness greater than our sin, and we lay hold of that when we confess our sins. So this practice of confession, just like we saw in Daniel 9, always needs to end with grabbing hold of mercy. Okay? Confession opens up the flow into our, of mercy into our lives. It turns our thoughts away from just the darkness of our sin to the mercy, the greater mercy of our God. Jesus, Hebrews says, always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7 says, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So this morning, there's a sense in which every person in this room deserves to live in Miracle Village, right? If we're thinking straight and we agree with what God says about our sin, we should be on that registry our registry. But in a very real, literal sense, Jesus has made a way for us all to be free from the registry of our sins, fully free to live awash with mercy, never to be condemned again, never. This is why confession is such a glad thing. It isn't something that you have to do. It's something you get to do. You get to forsake your sins and be free. Who wouldn't want to walk in that every single day? And confession is one of those beautiful things that is both the way you enter into God's family and the way you stay in beautiful relationship with God once you're in that family. Right? And so some of you this morning, you've never confessed your sin and transferred your hope to Jesus as your sin bearer, <clears throat> you're going to have a chance to do that this morning. You can do that this morning, and it changes everything. You are off the registry when you do that. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is, is to confess together um, and say a prayer of confession all together as God's people this morning and confess our sins. And then I'll have you be seated again and the worship team's gonna lead us in a time of meditation for you to privately and personally confess any sin that God has brought to mind that he wants you to forsake anew or forsake again. So we'll have a chance to do that after, after we pray this prayer together. So if you'd stand with me.
This is a, a good prayer for us to pray together this morning as God's people, um, as we confess our sins. So pray with me. God of compassion, in Christ Jesus, you did not disdain the company of sinners, but welcomed them with love. Look upon us in mercy, we pray. Our sins are more than we can bear. Our pasts enslave us. Our misdeeds are beyond correcting. Forgive the wrongs we cannot undo. Free us from a past we cannot change. Heal what we can no longer fix. Grace our lives with your love and turn the tears of our past into the joys of new life with you. Amen and amen. Let me invite you to be seated and use this time to reflect and personally confess any sin that the Spirit brings to mind as the team leads us in a time of meditation and confession and reflection.